Du lytter til Maskinrummet, en podcast med fokus på omgivelsernes indflydelse på det kreative udtryk og livet som skabende og udøvende kunstner i det hele taget. Mit navn er MC Hansen. Welcome to the engine room, Stephen. Thank you. This is um, this is a podcast where we investigate, you know, the influence of the environment on the creative expression, as we put it, and then life as a creative individual. Sure. In general, so um, you and I just played a uh, Maskeen Helen mm-hmm. last Friday, mm-hmm. and um, could you ex- explain to me or ex- just elaborate on what a great venue feels like? When you walk in, what is it ideally? What does it feel like? What does it look like? How do, how do they make you feel? What's a great venue for you? I think of the great the the venues that I I usually walk into and feel the most at home in right away are um, they're older, um, so there's a sense of history in them. Hmm. Um, I like venues that have, especially the old music halls where the floors are wooden and the walls are what we call lath and plaster. Mm -hmm. So before they got into drywall, I don't know if people use drywall here. So before that, they used to use this system where they'd they'd put strips of wood across the um, wall studs and then they'd cover it with plaster. And it has a sound. It definitely has a sound. So wood... And plaster rooms sound good, yeah. and they reflect well. Um, so it's sort of the difference too between whether I'm walking in with a band or walking in solo. But if I'm solo, um, I really like a room where I can hear the room when I'm on stage. So it's not just dead. Does it make a difference to you if you can see the audience when you're on stage? Yeah, although. That sort of, um, at some point during the show, that doesn't that becomes unimportant. Okay. I stop thinking about it because you know there's lights on you, and so you're a bit dazzled by lights. But uh, certainly for the first 10 minutes, 15 minutes of a show, it's really important for me to spend a lot of time looking at the audience, even if I can't really see them because of the lights. Mm-hmm. I still try to to make contact, and then at some point, um, you forget about it. Do you treat an outdoor show the same way, like a big festival? I guess so, and I probably shouldn't, because they're really different. Um, I do like playing in 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 enclosed spaces. Uh-huh. Um, over the lockdown uh, that just happened in Canada. I don't know if the same restrictions applied, but we were allowed to do outdoor shows if there was a, a maximum of 50 people. Yeah. And so I ended up playing backyard shows. And there was a couple of backyard shows where they were small outdoor shows. I really enjoyed them. Um, I like having a big enough PA system that it's a, the sound is quite big. I hate playing PA systems where... 
it's a little PA that's that's squawking as loud as it can. I like right. a big PA that's just sort of humming along about a half level. So that's sort of part of the physical environment. Okay, is the sound. Um, so, well, you and I have played all kinds of different venues together, yeah. and I know you have with Blackie and the Rodeo Kings too. Yeah. So I guess. So you play a solo show, obviously a room that holds like 75 to 175 people is ideal. Yeah. Um, you're on stage at some big folk festival and there's 5,000 people out there. You and I were talking about that in the car yesterday. Yeah. You don't really say much when you're in that band. Does yeah. that make a difference to you? If it's with Blackie or if it's a solo show? Yeah. Um, it, with a solo show, because it's just me or if it's me with the sentimentals. Right. Uh, it's still, I mean... It was interesting playing in Canada with the Sentimentals. That was we just did that earlier this year. That was the first time we'd done it. The difference for me was I was in front of an audience that a knew me intimately. Uh, they've seen me many, many times, and also English first language. So that was very different. And again, I mean, that's another factor to throw in. If the audience doesn't speak English as a first language, immediately that puts sort of a. Um, a filter up between mm -hmm. me and the audience, right? which I have to deal with. It, it means it's, it's, it changes the way I perform. I, I, I noticed when we played Stars, which is an interesting sounding room. I like the room sound. Um, it's, it's a big room, but I found myself using my hands a lot right. because yeah. I was still speaking like I am. But I'm using my hands a lot more because I'm trying to communicate. So when I played in Canada with you guys, I felt like um, that wasn't an issue, but I was still playing with you guys. So it was a different kind of a thing. Right. Um, when I'm playing with the Rodeo Kings, because there are two other front guys, mm -hmm. um, I, I talk very little. If at all, I might go the whole show and say hardly anything. I might introduce one song. And because I keep my mouth shut, because there's two other guys who speak a lot and I don't need to speak. So when it comes time for me to speak, I feel almost clumsy because I'm suddenly opening my mouth for the first time in an hour. Right. It's a strange feeling. It's like being at a party where you just don't say a word and then you suddenly, everybody looks at you and you feel like you have to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Say something funny right yeah. now. And um, so it's it's an interesting dynamic. You were asking about the size of the audience. As a solo artist, the most comfortable for me would be up to about 300, 400 people. And then it starts to become so big that you lose track of individual people and it becomes right. a different thing. So we, uh, last summer, we played a show in front of 20,000 people when uh, Robert Plant and Alison Krauss were playing at this big blues festival in Ottawa, and we were on the act before them. And uh, it was very exciting because the energy is huge. The energy, there's there's this wave of energy coming at you from, a, from the audience, but um, it's much harder to tune into it in the same way. It's It's... It's like the expression trying to sip from a fire hose, right. you know, um, whereas I'll play shows as a solo artist. Yes, I might. I might. I do get to play some shows where there's there's 300, 400 people there. I play a lot of shows where it's 200 people or less and and shows where there's 20 people. 
You also play a lot of shows in front of people who don't speak English. At least they don't have English as their first language. Yeah. Could you think of uh, anything that the that a venue could do to accommodate that? Would it make make a difference if the MC gets up there and starts talking in English to the people he would usually speak Danish or Dutch or German to, or would that but just be, you know, funny? I think it would be. I've thought about this, and you know, we tried on the um, the last two shows that we did where I I had Google Translate, uh-huh. and I think it was I think it was a good thing to do. I think that it would be really irritating to try and do that for the whole show. Oh yeah. Um, but I've actually started thinking about having a couple of things on my phone mm-hmm. or something quick. It has to be really quick. It can't interrupt the flow of the show at all. Right. Um, but I, I, I think probably the most advantageous thing is to have at first to speak to the audience in their native language shows respect. Yeah. And, um, if you can't, because I can't speak Danish at all. Right. <laughs> I can't even pronounce the name of the road you live on. <laughs> um, but so having a computer means that I can control what it's saying, sort of, mm-hmm. because the translations are always going to be a bit strange. Um, and so I can I can address what I think of as the elephant in the room, which is that I'm a storyteller, but English is the language that I tell my stories in. And I do tell Stories that involve metaphor, mm-hmm. double entendre, similes, all sorts of things which are really hard to get if English is your second language or third language. And a translator isn't necessarily going to get them either. Right. Because you and I have talked about translating lyrics and it it's not really, you can't translate the thought and the emotion exactly. So I think the first thing to do is be respectful to the audience and whether that's me or an MC doing it or Google Translate doing it, finding a way to sort of say, I know that we may struggle a little bit, but this is what uh, my intention is. And um, I hope that you can get something out of this. Yeah. Then it comes down to the emotion of the thing, which when all is said and done, that's actually what what people are connecting with exactly. is the yeah, emotion I just of it. Say that, yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. And that can be communicated in music too. It can be, and in facial expression, and in laughter, and 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 gestures. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> du lytter til Maskinrummet, en podcast med fokus på omgivelsernes indflydelse på det kreative udtryk og livet som skabende og udøvende kunstner i det hele taget. So what does a good audience do when they're doing a good job? They respond. That's one thing that I've really had to get used to, not just in Denmark, but in the north of England. Right. Um, and I had friends from England who played shows in Canada for the first time, and they found it very, very strange because Canadian audiences, not all of them, but they do tend to be a little bit more demonstrative a little bit more uh, animated right, right away. Okay. So you walk on stage and they're excited already. Now, I don't know if that's if that's just my experience, but I think that's a little, I think Northern England, they can be a little bit more sort of stern, a little bit more reserved. And certainly when we were playing in Fredrikshavn, that there was a feeling that people were, They were just sitting back, and they may have been f- experiencing stuff, but they weren't emoting it. Right. And 
It's definitely a different show if you're not getting anything back from the audience. It makes a huge difference. It gets, you get tired, right? More exhausted, I would say. Yeah. So years ago, I was watching, I came back home from a show, and I turned the television on, and there was Pavarotti playing in New York Central Park in front of thousands of people with the symphony orchestra. And he's standing about 10 feet off of a big microphone because mm -hmm. he has a huge voice. Right. And what he would do is he'd sing an aria or a piece, and then he'd step in front of the microphone right to the edge of the stage and put his hands out. And he was actually wriggling his fingers. I know you can't see this because we're recording this, but he was wriggling his fingers, right, standing on the lip of the stage. And it was what he was doing was he was like a, a battery. He was absorbing all of the energy from the audience. Uh-huh. And they were cheering wildly and, you know, and then he'd go back behind the microphone and blow it all back out at them through his voice. And this cycle went on and on. It was like I could see very clearly what he was, and he's sweating, he's completely drenched in perspiration, but he's absorbing the energy of the crowd And opera lovers are very demonstrative. Uh -huh. They cry, you know. They're they're right there. It's it's a very passionate music. Um, and then he would give it back. So when this when that cycle isn't happening in the same way, it's difficult for a performer to get to the place where things start to become kind of magical. Do you have any tricks? Anything you do to make them give you something? Um, well, saying, hey, can you guys be more <laughs> responsive is the completely the wrong thing to do. Right. Because they're, people are shy. Right. So um, turn the lights down in the hall. If you ever play uh, concerts like folk clubs, often they're poor. They don't have any aesthetic. They may just have a naked bulb above the stage. So Because you, they moved into just an empty yeah, space. Yeah, or a house concert. Right. So I always try and create a space. I'll put lamps around me and turn all the rest of the lights off in the hall. If people are sitting in darkness, they'll focus more on what you're doing. They right. won't be distracted by something. And they also feel less self-conscious. There is a point with um, the sheer volume of people. So if people can hear... It's just, you're not going to applaud for a long time. Right. You're not right. going to emote for a long time. There's, it's like critical mass. You know, there has to be a certain amount of people for the size of the room. Mm -hmm. So if you're in a small room and it's packed with 20 people, yeah, that's going to feel exciting. If you're in a room that holds 200 and there's 20 people. Oh, oh yeah, totally. It's just not going to work. So... It's it's really matching the size of the room to the size of the music and the size of the audience. Yeah, if you play Maskinhallen and there's only 25 people there, it's going to be a bit of a challenge. Because the room, if you had 100 people in there or even 60 people in there, it would be a crucially different. Then, then it starts to, the energy is big enough for the size of the room. There's a festival in, in this town where they experimented a couple of years ago with just one-on-one. -on -one. So you'd walk into a tiny little tent. There'd be a songwriter in there. He would sing you a song and you'd leave again. <laughs> oh, that just, sounds terrible. I don't know. I haven't done it yet, but uh, it's a, at least it's an interesting thought, right? Well, yeah, but th there's a thing about 
anonymity too. Um, right. Um, like when, you know, when, if you ever go to see a comedian or a magician, you know, can I have a volunteer? It's like, Oh, Oh no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. I didn't come here to participate yeah. in that way. I came here to watch you and hear you. So I could see that that would be very difficult one-on-one. That would be kind of like playing for your parents. Right. You know, uh, singing the song about them. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's, it's, Sometimes, I mean, house concerts can be like that. They can be just a little too intimate. And yeah. then you have to you have to walk into the room as a performer and you have to be really confident. And absolutely, we are going to have a good time. Everybody, this is going to be so much fun. If, if an audience starts to feel awkward uh-huh. or uh, that something's going to go wrong or somehow it's going to get clumsy then they will clam up fast of course so you break a string and you don't handle it well or the pa system's got a problem and you don't handle it well Uh then you're just immediately transmitting that to the audience it's like that thing when you when you say to them or here's a song i want you to sing along everybody's going to put their across their arms in front of their body right because yeah they'll sing along if they want to yeah so could you uh Could you describe to me the ideal collaboration between artist, venue, and and possibly agent and publicist? Like before the show happens, what does that look like for you? You're playing a venue. You haven't played it in five years. The last time you had 75 people, you're hoping for 125 this time. How does that look ideally to you? What happens? Everybody has to be, has to be, has to care. And it has to be about more than money. And it's really hard because money is important. And I don't, I don't, I don't, um, I'm not one of these people who thinks, you know, uh, music is, is just art and money is separate. I really believe in getting paid for what you do and paying your agent and that everybody should get paid because that's how we measure in our society, uh, uh, things, a certain aspect of value. So I don't think that you can take the money out of the equation. I think it's part of the equation, but it has to be a lot more than that. Uh-huh. And so, for instance, I work with an agent in Canada, and she and I talk about what is this gig uh, show going to be like? What is the venue like? What is the promoter like? What what happened last time? Um, we talk about things like um, are they are they only hiring white men? Are they hiring women? Are they hiring indigenous people? Do they is that part of what they think is important? So that's important. Um, is the promoter uh, crooked? Are they trustworthy? Right. You know that's important. So then it comes down to we all want to put on a good show, and that a good show is when enough people show up that everybody feels like it was it, it, it hit the mark so the guarantee I don't know if you get into guarantees on this Sometimes. this podcast but the idea of a guarantee is um, that the promoter says I will give you this much money to play the show I'm gonna take that much of a risk let's say a thousand dollars sure and I'm gonna risk that enough people will come that I'll pay off the cost of the venue, the PA system, all the publicity, and whatever other expenses there are, including your $1,000, that we're going to make at least that. Uh 
And then you get into percentage. Um, so if, if another 30 people show up um, after we paid off all the expenses, then how we divide that up. Um, that becomes part of the equation because it's sort of everybody looking at the performance and thinking, what's going to happen here? And so it becomes important that we all put in the same amount of energy to make all those different things that I've talked about happen equally well, including a number, a, a, a group of people leaving the venue after the show going, God, that was good. I'm happy. I feel good. And I feel that that's my job and my agent's job and the promoter's job and the sound person's job and everybody else who's involved. If one person walks in there and basically thinks that they're just punching the clock and getting paid and they're, they're uh, you know, they're rude or they're unthinking or uncaring, they'll take away from that. So everybody has to be. And, and it's funny because I think of that as being professional. Mm -hmm. That's to me as being professional. So a professional person walks into a venue and to a show into that scenario with the intention of making the audience happy. That's being professional. Du lytter til Maskinrummet, en podcast med fokus på omgivelsernes indflydelse på det kreative udtryk og livet som skabende og udøvende kunstner i det hele taget. When do you feel like this show is over? You walk into the venue dressed like the you know the person Stephen Fearing, then you yeah. you put on your nice jacket and you're now the artist Stephen Fearing. Yeah. When do you stop being the artist Stephen Fearing? Uh, is that when you when you're at in, back in your hotel room or is Yeah, somewhere in there. Somewhere after the show, I go talk to people. Definitely. That's a big part of it for me. I I can't think of a single show I've ever done in my entire life where I haven't made myself available afterwards. Right. I never questioned it. Right. It's just part, It's just of, part the, of the show, right? Yeah. I I actually want that. I want and and sometimes when I used to be a smoker in the break Oh yeah, I'd go out the back, sure, and find the smokers, and then you get a read on what's happening in the show because you're all out there smoking, and as smoking becomes more and more, uh, you know, shunned and less and less popular, you're you're more the sort of the outsiders. You really get a sense of what's happening in the venue and how the crowd's taking. You can ask them, "Does this sound okay? You know, is the guitar this that?" And you're sharing something. So you get a sense, and I want that connection with an audience because suddenly the second set can be quite different. So I, I like doing two sets. That's another thing that's worth talking about. Yeah, not just doing one set. I like doing two. Um, sometimes people have a drink, a glass of wine in between, relaxes them a little bit, and now they know what's going to happen in the second set. It's not a complete blank slate, so they're a little more invested. Do you think it would be it would be valuable if the venue created? Like an e like a, a particularly cozy space that hosted that interaction after the show. You're done playing. That's where your merch is. Maybe there's yeah. cool couches. Maybe there's a free drink. Yeah. Maybe maybe you maybe you chose the drink or yeah yeah know, something like that. Um, yeah, I think that that's an interesting idea. I mean, the merch table is really about trying to you know sell CDs and LPs, but it's also about meeting people. Yeah, and in Nashville. Um, in country music, they they have the signing tent, and it's kind of right. like a book launch where the artist sits behind a table, and people sort of file through one after the other. And the truth is that unless you 
formally set it up, it becomes, you know, the people that are the most sort of outgoing or pushy sometimes uh-huh. will spend the most time with you. Yeah. And the sort of people who are a little bit introverted or they'll, they'll stay at the back and they may not. So I try to stick around as long as it takes for right. everybody until the last person's done. And then there's a point where you realize, oh, we're done here. Yeah. And then it's then it's time to get my wet clothes off and put my guitar away and my pedals. And uh, it's, it, when I'm touring solo, it, it's very regular for me to be the very last person leaving the venue. And there's like a janitor, you know, sweeping yeah. the floor. And I'm the volunteers have long gone. They stacked all the chairs and they're gone. Yeah. And I'm loading my gear into my car. Um, that happens all the time. But uh, the idea of having a space where you can meet people is a nice idea. I noticed the other night that uh, they started, you know, taking away the chairs like five minutes after we got off yeah. stage. That's never desirable, right? You want no. them to to leave the the atmosphere hanging yeah. in there for half an hour or so, yeah. I would say. Especially if it's a good show. And I mean, it. you should be assuming that it's going to be a good show. That should be the the bottom line yeah. is this is going to be a good show. Oh, yeah. And so, yeah, people will want to linger. Sure, and uh, and um, if if it's if it if it's important to get out at eleven o'clock because there's some kind of curfew or something, then start the show earlier. Yeah, totally. So that people have time to linger and uh, and digest what just happened. Can you think of a show that went particularly well? Um, say, well, all throughout your whole career or recently, something where you were like, "Oh my god, this was just delightful. I wish I could do this every night." And what made it so good? Well, it's a variety of things. Honestly, I, I couldn't pick one. It's um, sometimes it's just a little show, like it's literally a show in somebody's backyard, right? Um, because there's an intimacy. It's really about the connection with the audience. Uh-huh. And so, what happens then for me is, if I am connected with the audience and they're with me which mm-hmm. is hard to define but then what happens is i stop thinking about everything right. suddenly my guitar's in tune better mm-hmm. easier quicker everything moves quicker and easier and um you just you get those moments where you finish playing and there's silence Not because it's awkward, but because the moment is hanging in the air and everybody is in that moment. And then it breaks and and you go to the next one and the next one. And there's laughter and there's genuine sadness. And people might actually shed tears. And they might guffaw with laughter. And they forget themselves and they forget, you know, all the things that are on their minds. You know, we all have so much on our minds these days. And... People forget that stuff. So that's the special show. And it can happen. It can happen in a big venue. Um, it can happen in a small venue, but that's it. It's interesting. A friend of mine mentioned to me recently when I was complaining that the sound had been terrible. We had a terrible feedback. I wasn't able to hear the cello. Yeah. And he said, well, I just listened to it because the whole show was recorded. He's a DJ. And he said, you know what? Keep in mind that You you remember what it felt like, not what it sounded like. Yeah, I thought that was a really good lesson for me. I'd never thought about it like that. Yeah, because um, that just made me think of uh, you, know, you and I played the Shrewsbury Folk Festival last summer. Yeah, and I had a great time. Yeah, 
and you did not because your your <laughs> voice was uh, yeah. going away because you just yeah. played two other shows yeah, yeah. and you were exhausted. Yeah, yeah I was exhausted. I just remember you saying, oh, "Let's get off the stage." Uh, even though we, I felt like we had the best time ever. So it's a, I guess it's very different. It is, and I I have to remind myself too that some nights when I think it's not happening, uh-huh. for whatever reason, and then um, it is. Yeah, um, and uh, the audience has had a different experience than me, so. Um, I'm not always the greatest judge of whether it's a good show or a good venue or anything, you know? Right, right. There's also nights where you walk on stage and you're sick um, or there's something really, really wrong and you have to kind of claw your way out of the hole that you're already in before the show even begins. And because of that, it becomes a super special night because you are you've got a multiplication sign beside you. It has to be bigger than normal. And because of that, and, you know, just maybe it's circumstances, but it, I've had night, I had a night where I had uh, food poisoning. So I was literally, it was Blackie and the Rodeo King show. I was literally running off stage and throwing up. Oh, no. Behind the monitors. Oh, my God. <laughs> like just off stage. And then I run back on. And you know we're in the middle of a show. There's there's three guys on stage. It's it's full on. Everybody's covered in sweat, and I'm literally running off the stage and throwing up, and then coming back on. And uh, this happened maybe three times in the in the actual show because you know what food poison's like. Oh no! And it was I I can't say that I'd ever want to do it again, but by all accounts, I still run into people who are at that show. Some of them had an inkling that there was something wrong with me, but they didn't know what it was. Right. But all they got was just like super intense performance coming from three guys who were just like, like, what were you guys? They were basically going, what was going on? You guys were just on fire. Interesting. Yeah. I had the, ex- not well, not with food poisoning, but I had a nervous breakdown. <laughs> and, and of course, my stupid musician brain, I, but the breakdown happened in my park back in Sweden. And I had a show that night. And of course, I decided I have to go play the show because yeah. that's more important than anything, right? So I did. And I remembered walking to the stage. There were two steps up. And I was looking at those two steps. And I was like, there's no way I could get up there. Somehow I did. And inside myself, I was just crying the whole time. Yeah. I didn't know why. Yeah. I just was. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, like, I, without going into detail, I had some of the same symptoms as you do with food poisoning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> my friend said to me after the show, that's the best show I've ever seen you do. Uh-huh. And it was the worst show I'd ever done, uh-huh. at least for myself. I guess adrenaline is a really powerful drug. Adrenaline and getting outside of yourself, which I think if, if it's a really great night and there's a lot going on between you and the audience, then you, the experience for me is, is, I suddenly realized the show's over. Right. And it's like, I don't, it's like when you drive, you know, for a long, long distance and four hours go by and you realize, I don't actually remember any of that drive. Like I can't go, yeah. And then I passed that tree and then there was the farm. None of it. It's just, you're, you know, you're driving the car, but you're not actually there. It's very strange when you think about it, but great shows are kind of like that because- you're in a place where you're kind of surfing on top of everything. And so you it's heightened. You're taken out of yourself. You're pushed beyond what you normally do. I think that's a great ambition to have for on behalf of any show. So I would yeah. say, um, well, on that note, try to, you know, 
forget about yourself and uh, it's all going to be yeah, fine. Get, get out, out of your, your own way. way. It's yeah, hard right. to do because you're always the guy looking at, am I in tune? What's, uh, is that too much tremolo? Uh, what's the feedback? Why is that person at the back of the room leaving? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Somebody's on their phone. Yeah. You know, like you're just constantly monitoring everything. Um, but when you when you let go of it all, it's it's pretty special. Yeah. Well, on that note, um, thanks for being part of uh, the engine room. You're very welcome. And, uh, thanks for doing this. Good questions. No problem. Thanks, Stephen. My pleasure. Du har lyttet til Maskinrummet, en podcast med fokus på rammernes indflydelse på det kreative udtryk og livet som skabende og udøvende kunstner i det hele taget. Maskinrummet er redigeret af Jens Ole Hvide Armstrong og udgives af spillestedet Maskinhallen. Lyddesign, Jakob Hamstrup. Mit navn er MC Hansen.